Welcome to the story of XH558, Into the Sky. Hello and welcome along to another episode of Vulcan to the Sky. Uh, today, we welcome Martin Withers, DSC, and Vulcan pilot. Hi, Martin. Hello, Martin. Before we go any further, of course, we've had the recent tragic news about Dr. Robert Fleming. And I know you and uh, Robert were very close. And I think you, you just a few things you'd like to say, isn't it, before we move on? Yeah, well, I'm I'm speaking on the 16th of February. Tragically, Robert died just a couple of weeks ago, and very unexpectedly, and has been a shock to everybody. But in the context of 558, Robert is the man, uh, as described in a book by Tony Blackman, who was the test pilot for Vulcans when they were being assembled. He was described as a man who thought he could climb every mountain and did not understand the word no. And he was joined the project in about 1998 and was absolutely determined to get 558 Airborne again. And it was only through his efforts and his determination and the fact that he managed to get together a very powerful team of trustees and the fact that he worked so hard, admittedly with loads of support from other people. The Vulcan flew at all and then he was remained, of course, as the CEO of Vulcan to the Sky to this day and did so many more things towards heritage aircraft as well. But without going into that, it's, it's just that we all owe such a debt of gratitude to him for being so determined to get this aircraft up in the air. So you mentioned there that Robert got involved in it in 1996. When did you actually become involved with Vulcan to the Sky Trust? Really, out of the blue, I got an invitation from Dave Thomas, who I didn't know particularly well, to meet up with Robert. It will have been about that time. I don't remember the exact date, but the late 90s, to meet Robert, to put it to, because he was trying to put together crews, and more than just the pilots, but the mm -hmm. pilots and the AEOs, really. And uh, so that was it. But then it wasn't until a bit later they started work on the aircraft and this club was working hard to raise money for it all that uh, I started to get to know people and go down to Bruntingthorpe near Leicester, sort of got involved. But I wasn't responsible for so much of it at all, of the hard the work behind the scenes uh, to persuade the CAA to do it and to work out what was required very largely carried out by Dave Thomas, his team, which included Barry Maysfield as the AEO, other, other people, as we, they went along. And Mike Pollitt, sorry, I was forgetting Mike Pollitt. Dave Thomas, he was in the Vulcan display team. Uh, the conversations that we've had, you reminded me that Dave Thomas brought 558 to Bruntingthorpe, correct? Yes, but he was one of the two pilots who flew it in, yes, in 1993. And they then remained connected to it because for years they were doing fast taxi runs down the runway. He, he then not only was involved in persuading the CAA group or the safety group, this was going to be a safe operation. He then got the crew together, primarily the pilots together, but I call him our tame navigator, who was very valuable in the early days, Andy Marson and Barry Macefield as the AEO work out a scheme for training people. I myself hadn't flown a Vulcan for 25 years. 
So even though I was an experienced Falcon pilot with nearly 2,000 hours on the, on the aircraft and also a, an instructor on the, on the conversion unit, there was an awful lot I'd forgotten. But Dave got us all together. Uh, we did sufficient training to, to appease the CAA. Uh, we used the, another Vulcan down at Wellspawn where we actually could go and do his practice escape drills and, and also emergency procedures in the cockpit but Dave was there training us. And then when we started to fly, the first flight, he was flying as the co-pilot effectively because with Al McDickin, who was a fully qualified test pilot, and they flew in the first flight. Dave then flew every single, or no, it's not, it's not quite true. Al McDickin, the test pilot, did a few trips in uh, 2008. Basically, Dave was responsible for all the displays that were carried out in uh, 2008. 2008, of course, you were involved with it, but obviously not flying 558 at that point. Is that correct? What happened in 2007 was the, the first flight in October 2007, which everyone was thought was the start of a, a run of flights that they could complete the, all the flight tests of something like six flights to prove all the systems worked. It was assumed that we would be doing the, this one flight and then supervised by marshals of Cambridge for, as our engineering authority. We'd hoped that we could just carry on with these test flights into the winter but marshals, for some reason, I, I don't know the detail, didn't permit this. So we had to wait until the following year, in fact, till the beginning of April in 2008, before uh, we could continue with the flight testing. And in fact, I was on that the second test flight, in other words, the first flight in April, which for me was a very memorable flight, because it was actually the first time I'd had to have been in an aircraft in a Vulcan, where we had to uh, send out a Mayday and do an emergency landing at Cottesmore because we had a, a fire warning on the auxiliary power unit, little jet engine that provides us with uh, electricity. I have to say this is quite a, uh, an eye-opener, you know, the, not having flown the aircraft for 25 years. And then for this to happen, the only time in my flying career, I've done 16,000 hours, but that's the only time that I've actually had to put out a mayday. Quite a memorable start to the thing. And in fact, because my family and we're all expecting us to be landing at, at Cottesmore, but something like an hour later, I had my family all around. In fact, my daughter was even up in the control tower when this, and they knew she was on the university air squadron. So they uh, actually, she was allowed to listen in to the radio and then to hear mayday, mayday, mayday. They asked her to leave the, leave the control tower. Yeah, I can imagine. Just, just remind us, because you said it there, it's 25 years since you'd flown a Vulcan. Well, you were still flying at this point, weren't you? What were you flying? Oh, well, I've been an airline pilot since 1991. And actually, once we got into this time, I'd forcibly retired by Thomas Cook at the age of 60. But I'd got a flying job with another lovely airline called Zoom, doing long-haul flights in a, a lovely Boeing 767-300. Empty, it was far more powerful than the Vulcan. I'm not supposed to tell Vulcan people that. <laughs> so suddenly you've, you've gone from the, the state-of-the-art technology in the 767 and then all of a sudden you're, you're back to the Vulcan I mean that must have been quite a contrast Well the, the big thing you miss in a Vulcan was a, a good navigational system In service of course we flew along with two navigators All the navigation on the aircraft unless we were flying along visually at low level was carried out by the navigators. The navigator radar, who actually navigated us using 
his radar to determine exactly where we were, or we would use other navigation aids to uh, to keep us on track. And then the navigator plotter was literally doing that. He had a chart in front of him, and he was actually plotting where we were and where we thought it would be in a little while, and estimating arrival times and so on. So very similarly to how you would have done, I say, in a Lancaster or plenty of that vintage. Obviously, we had better A's down the back, but we had very little information at the front. And that was a, something that's hard to get used to when you've been flying a modern airliner. So all of a sudden, yeah, you, like you were saying there, you're in control of everything for in your modern aircraft, and then all of a sudden you're back to 25 years previously where you're part of a team again. So that, yeah, did, I mean, did you slip back into that quite easily, or did you, or, or did it take a little getting used to again? We did have a navigator in the first season who came with us on every trip. He used to plan the routes because this is all new to me. I'd never even been a display pilot, let alone flown around in a civilian aircraft because the Vulcan, of course, was registered as a civilian aircraft. We, we were having to fly around and, and comply with all those rules. So it helped enormously to have an navigator to plan the flights, particularly doing a complex flight across the country and north and south. The navigation equipment in the aircraft, which was visible to the AEO down the back, was far more than we had in the front. And we had a, a device which took a long time to load up and only gave you a certain amount of information. We still relied on having a map. But took Andy Marston along with us on a lot of the flights for the first year. Uh, thereafter, we got the hang of how we could plan our own course, how we could avoid the, all the normal threats of flying along over the UK with all the other light aircraft and gliders around because we weren't allowed to go up through cloud so we, we were always flying pretty low but Andy would uh, actually plan the route still go on planning routes for us for quite a long time uh, after that and sending us out the routes until we were able to really have the the means to plan our own routes so is that down to the level of equipment you were talking there about you know being able to climb higher fly at higher altitudes is it because of the equipment on board the aircraft at the time that it, it stopped you from doing that? No, it was just really that the Vulcan itself was designed to have the navigators down the back. Right, uh, right. So why do you think that you were chosen as one of the, the pilots to fly 558, Martin? Obviously, I, was, I had the experience in terms of hours flying, and I had been a, an instructor, as I said, on the, a, the conversion unit. Um, and I was still currently flying a large aircraft. Obviously, I do have a, a little bit of a, a name for other things, so possibly my celebrity was also helped a little bit uh, to get me the job. Well, I wonder what that could be. Well, I can't remember it so far long ago. <laughs> but again, I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful that I was selected in, and enjoyed every minute of it. An interesting fact that when we were talking earlier was you told me something about the type of license that you need to fly a Vulcan, which fly the Vulcan, which came as quite a surprise to me. Just tell the listeners what I still can't believe this. What type of license do you actually need to fly a Vulcan? All you needed to have was a private pilot's license, a PPL, because that was a license to fly which had been but it would imply that you'd had a medical and you'd had sufficient training and so on to be you know currently able to to fly anything any aircraft as long as you could clear to fly a single engine piston aircraft then that was enough license to uh, 
by the Vulcan. That's incredible when you consider the complexity of that aircraft that you could just just simply a private pilot's license and then that's it. I mean, obviously there's a little bit more to it than that, but on the face well, of it, yeah. I mean, it's like now I have a license for life. I have to go and get my driving license renewed every three years or something. But um, but it does mean that you have to be medically fit and to be currently in practice on an aircraft and uh, checked out regularly. Fabulous. Are you still flying? I haven't flown since the lockdown last March. Right. I've still got a valid license, just. Just. I haven't got a valid medical anymore, only because I haven't tried to update it. So will you have to get another medical then before you can actually start to fly again as and when oh, yeah. things... And you have to have a, a medical every year, quite a strict medical somebody of my age you know. <laughs> what 45 <laughs> <laughs> so sorry we digressed a little bit there i just thought that was a really interesting fact of course so we got to 2008 in the conversation we was having uh, your first flight the second test flight with the emergency landing had you at this point got your display uh, sorry i've got is it display authority that's what it is isn't it no 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 in 2008, say I hadn't flown it for 25 years. On every trip that I did through through that year, which was something like 10 flights, then I would be given a chance to do some extra flying. Dave Thomas was doing all the displays, so all my flights were with him as the captain. And then I just, but I was then taught how to do the different display manoeuvres, and it was only right at the back end of the the year when I was able to actually have practiced the displays enough to go in front of a display examiner from the CAA and to be granted a display authorization, which in those days was then valid right up over the winter until the start of the season. So at the start of the following year's season, all I needed to do was to do three practice displays and then I could just do a public display. So in 2008 as well, that was the first flight of 558 in terms of its first display flight wasn't it at waddington absolutely it was such a a target for us i say the the date we were concerned about was july the 5th which was waddington air show now the aircraft uh, hadn't really been based at waddington but all the crew had been and we were so determined to get this display flight and it was we kept hitting snags particularly just paperwork before we could do it. And at very much, very last minute, then we managed to achieve everything required really by the CAA. Dave Thomas himself, who did the first display there, uh, he had to get checked out on his own display authorization. Even though he'd been a display pilot before, mm-hmm. um, he obviously had to re- renew his display authorization. And it was a sort of mad panic on to be ready, but it all came well on the day best sort of bit to go with it was everyone was so pleased to see the Vulcan flying again that it was uh, agreed Bratton Memorial flight that we should link up with the the Lancaster for at least a fly past an incredible thing to do on on the day because the Lank of course was an Avro aircraft and in fact the last the last bomber to come off the line from Avro until the Vulcan. It was only 11 years from the first flight of a Lancaster to the first flight of a Vulcan. Incredible that. When you think about it, you've gone from four prop engines to four jet engines in 11 years. It's uh, it's quite amazing achievement, that really, isn't it? Oh, it was. Yes, such a, such a leap in technology. 
Yeah, absolutely. So 2008's come, everything <laughs> by the seat of your pants, by the sounds of things, you got uh, Vulcan back on the uh, 558, back on the display season again, everything's gone okay. And then, of course, you had to move from uh, Bruntingthorpe as well. Was it two seasons you was at Bryce Norton? No, we were at Bryce 2008-2009, yeah. Okay, so that would so be the two... Two flying seasons then, yeah, 2008, 2009, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Who, in the second season, I believe that there was a change of crew in the second season, the 2009 season. So who who made up the crew come the second season? Right, well, the, the, the big change uh, was that Dave Thomas, who we'd relied upon totally um, to be, do all displays uh, up until the end of 2008, decided to retire at the beginning of the season, you found I was the only pilot, only display pilot with, with any qualification. But um, I was able to fly with Kev Rumens, who very quickly picked up how to do displays in the Vulcan. And he became the, another display pilot. Only just a few flights after I, I'd done my first display, he was doing his first display. So there was quite a few uh, um, new manoeuvres, shall we say? Well, the, the big change was that Dave Thomas modelled his display on the what they'd done in the RAF, but simplified it. One thing that I like to do was instead of it being just showing the Vulcan off as a beautifully docile, slow-speed aircraft, um, which a lot of people still like to see, it's just so majestic as it sort of goes past really slowly in front of you. We wanted to change things or I want to change things. And so we started running in at high speed and doing uh, more complex maneuver or more power, using much more power and much more speed. We managed to introduce two more pilots that year, but made life even more interesting and so on for me as uh, brought back Bill Perrins, who had been a, a, a Vulcan pilot. And then uh, everybody seemed to know this guy, Pod, Phil O'Dell, got a reputation everywhere as uh, everybody wants him to fly their airplanes and we couldn't resist inviting him to come along and, and join the team and so I had the pleasure of, of doing his instruction he's the chief test pilot for Rolls-Royce he's responsible for the Rolls-Royce Spitfire he's qualified on all sorts of aircraft has flown uh, displays himself quite a long time and it was just such a joy to fly with him. So just on that point, something that just popped into my mind there, you're talking about Phil O'Dell and, of course, Bill Perrin and, and Kev, as a, I'm sure a lot of people will know Kev as the ruminator. Um, <laughs> and that very famous uh, takeoff he did at, uh, at Riyadh that year. When you got these other experienced pilots sat at the side of you, was it a joy for you to be able to just sort of sit back and let them take control and just enjoy what they could do rather than you being in control all the time? Oh, no, it was actually a, a, a delight to be working with people who were very good pilots in themselves and uh, whom you could just trust without having to uh, in any way feel you were sitting there as an instructor looking after us uh, inept student. Sounds like you had a great team there, mate. And in the back office as well. I mean, we're talking about the pilots, and but you had some great guys in the back office as well, didn't you? You know, Barry Macefield was was the AEO originally, and then as you mentioned, Andy Marsden already. And, yeah, and uh, we we had this is right at the start. We were just a small group, and we had a, a lot of fun. 
And when we we're based down at Bry's Norton in particular, we always used to go down the, the night before. And we, you know, it was a very, very pleasant social life that we had there. And, and this was all lost, really, for me anyway, uh, when we eventually moved up to Doncaster, because I only lived 45 minutes away. We missed out to an extent on the social side of it. But we still had to do our annual training. And for this, the training started off Dave Thomas, who, who did this. We followed a proper training schedule and it was all taken very, very seriously. Uh, Dave Thomas would give us lectures and we had to do a little exam on it to prove that we our technical knowledge was up to speed, even though we took it very, very seriously. And it was a, we had a, a lot of fun together, some happy memories of that time. So when Dave Thomas eventually decided he, he, he wanted to retire from uh, 558, from the Vulcan to the Sky Trust, you're saying there about regular updates with the training, etc. Who took over that mantle then? Oh, well, no, Dave, Dave was good enough to uh, agree to come back and do, I can't remember whether it's one or more years of the training that we did through the winter training. But then after that, because we'd done it for several years, we still carried on with the same sort of procedure of revision but it, we split it up between us that individuals would give little presentations on different parts of the aircraft like the fuel system the hydraulic system we actually did go down to wellsbourne they're live running vulcan down there practice our drills down there so we we did this training i say once a year and uh, dave i say did help us and he then certainly joined with us socially when would you start getting involved with the CAA again and, and letting that, you know, with, with regards to the standards, et cetera? We routinely had discussions about things like safety and we had people appointed. Kev, Kev Rumans sort of had a, a title of he was our safety manager and we had different roles. But let's say and it was an annual event to have an inspection by the CAA individually we had to renew the pilots had to renew their display authorizations every once every year yeah we we didn't i mean the preparation for the caa was just like any sort of inspection that you'd have all right so they just literally come around one day then and and make sure everything's as it should be and it's not a long drawn out process no no it it obviously was longer at the beginning than uh, than it became after a number of years because we were doing this for well seven seasons probably about so we will have had a, at least seven inspections if not more because they had of course to start with to get it airborne the inspections were very very intense and i don't know how they will have gone on but particularly on the engineering side 2008 558 gets back into the air and um, she sets off from Bruntingthorpe. she then goes to bryce norton for the 08-09 season end of 09 you, 558 then moved to Lynham for one season. Is that correct? The first year it flew, it landed back at Bruntingthorpe. Right. But the hangar there wasn't good enough, really, for a live engine, live aircraft. It was cold and damp. So 2008, we landed back at Bruntingthorpe. Mm -hmm. But 2009, yeah, we spent the, the, win the aircraft spent, spent the winter in a hangar at Lynham. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we operated out of Lynham because uh, Bryce Norton suddenly grew and the air tanker moved in and other squadrons and then eventually Lynham closed. So I might have got some of these dates a bit wrong, but, um, but by the end of 2009, 
we had four display pilots. And then it was 2011 when we moved up to Doncaster. Yeah, you flew you flew 558 into Doncaster on March the 11th. 2009 to 2015, you've been the chief pilot with 558. Six great years, six great flying years with 558. I'm sure you've got plenty of memories, but is there any particular thing that stands out in your mind? Uh, flying with the Red Arrows, Farnborough, Jersey, um, Southport, where Kev did an incredible join-up. I couldn't believe what was going on. We were met up with the Red Arrows. They, we were going round, round around in an orbit just to the west of, of the Mersey estuary. And uh, the Red Arrows came in from having done a display over in Europe. We saw them come over the top of us and then go out onto a holding pattern to get the timing just right. And then they came at us doing about 300 knots head on before turning to run up the coast to Southport. And Kev was flying it, and he, I didn't quite work out what he was doing because he was loitering quite low over the sea at about uh, 1,000 feet at about doing about 180 knots. And then as soon as he saw them coming, and they must have been about a mile or two away, he just put full power on, turned hard, wrapped onto a 180-degree before I knew what was happening, we were in formation. And in the, the number 10 called up, nice move, Kev, because he knew that Kev was flying it. No, it's, uh, I say, so many memories. It was just generally so enjoyable. The freedom we got to fly around the country was amazing because everyone made us welcome. You could talk to London air traffic and they would clear you in. Manchester airport sort of would hold other aircraft off while we flew in, flew down the runway and then uh, handled the aircraft in a way that you wouldn't be expected to, to do at International Airport. You know, that, that's the memory. But it's, I say, it was wonderful to be able to delight the crowds as we did. But I remember from the early days of displaying when I knew really well that we'd only done a very simple uh, display Everybody was applauding us and uh, patting us on the back and saying how wonderful we were. At the end of the day, really, it was just the aeroplane, which is so majestic and so lovely and manoeuvrable. And it's just so sad that it was cut short when it was, because it had certain years of life left in it if the engineering companies would have been prepared to extend it. Yeah, but as the, as the saying goes in amongst the volunteers, let's not be sad that it's ended. Let's be happy that it happened. So we've all had some great memories, you know, and as you said at the offset, we've got to thank uh, you know Robert for that and, of course, yourselves, uh, you know, for doing what you've done. So, Martin, I just want to say thank you very, very much. It has been fabulous talking to you. I never thought I'd be stood in a crowd watching you and then actually sat talking to you doing an interview with you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much for your time if you'd like to support operation safeguard the vulcan to the sky trust appeal to raise money to build a hangar at doncaster sheffield airport please visit vulcan to the sky.org